0: Well, we are continuing our look at the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, was enjoying uh, the Passover, what we call the Last Supper. It started out with Jesus and his 12 apostles and has now been reduced to Jesus and his 11, as Judas Iscariot uh, has gone out into the night to betray his Lord and master. We looked last week at John chapter 14, we began at verse 1 and we went through verse 11. Our text this morning is uh, is John chapter 14 and we're going to begin again at verse 11 and we're going to go through verse 15. So if you have your bibles with you, I'd encourage you to uh, open them up and follow along as I read. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, but would like to follow along, if you look in the seat, seats in front of you, underneath, you should find a Bible there. It's the same uh, translation that I'm going to be using here, uh, and that, our passage there will be found on page 901, John chapter 14, beginning at verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is about to go to his death. Not just a normal death, but he is about to go to a torturous death on a Roman cross. If you think about it, then, these are Jesus' last words. If you've ever been around someone who died in your presence, you may have wanted to hear what are their last words going to be? Would, would I be around to hear them? What would they say? And, and that's what these are. And, and so we, we slow down here and we, we look at this upper room discourse because these are Jesus' final words to his apostles before the chaos of the next day. And Jesus has been telling them something very important. He's been telling them that when they've seen him operating, they have seen the Father. That he and the Father mutually indwell one another. And so that when Jesus has been doing these great and miraculous works, it has been the fact that the Father is working through him, that that he only does what he sees the Father doing. He says in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And John, specifically in his gospel, points to these miraculous works and actually refers to them as signs. The reason he calls them signs is because he says these works that Jesus did specifically point to the fact that he is God in the flesh, that he is the one that he Spells out in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. These signs that prove that Jesus is God in the flesh were incredible, to say the least. Jesus' first recorded miracle was changing water into wine. Literally changing the molecular structure of one liquid and turning it into something else. He healed the royal official's son. He healed an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. He fed thousands of people with just a couple of fish and loaves he walked on top of the water he healed a man that had been born blind and his last and seventh and probably greatest sign no doubt was that he raised a man from the dead a man named Lazarus And those are the seven signs that John points to. And here, Jesus reiterates this idea. He says, look, though I did these miracles as a man, understand that they could only have been done by someone who is himself, also God. So believe on the works themselves, even if you don't believe my words. But then, it's pretty striking that the next thing he says is in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now look, Jesus is about to die. Let's just consider this for a second. If you have ever been with someone who is about to die and they share their final words with you, generally speaking, if you've been in that situation, usually you're sharing words with them. And usually the words you're sharing with them are words of comfort. You're trying to share with them something that in this dire moment they need to hear. Perhaps you're reading Scripture to them. Perhaps you're praying to them. And if they say anything to you, at most it will probably be some type of words of comfort to you trying to let you know that they'll be okay or you'll be okay or they're going to see the Lord or something like that. But let's consider the magnitude of what Jesus is saying. Here's a man who's been saying plainly that he's going away. I'm leaving and where I go you cannot come. I'm going to die. I'm going to die and I'm going to die and be crucified. And they know that. That's why their hearts are troubled. Death is a permanent separation of body from soul. That's why when someone dies, this embodied spirit that we are uh, is, is shattered. It's, 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 it's dealt a, a rift that, that only God can can mend again. And that's why the Bible says that death is the ultimate enemy. It's the ultimate separation. When you lose a loved one to death, that's it. You might go and visit the the grave every once in a while, but there's no requesting anything from that person anymore. Once they're dead, they're gone. And until their spirit is united again with their body, their body will not get up and do anything. And yet Jesus, who is going away to his death is telling them that they will have more power to do more things because he's going away. Who else says that? I mean, if that doesn't tell you that he's God, I don't know what does. What man who's going to his death says, that he's going to do anything anymore. Look at what he promises. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. See, we can't miss that these promises that Jesus is giving to them, these promise, they hinge on the fact that Jesus is going away. He says that. All of these things are going to happen because I am going to the Father. So he's not just saying that, that you'll make it even after I die. He, he's not even saying that, that if I die, my, the words that I taught you and and the things that I showed you when I was alive, they will come back to memory and you'll be able to live on the things that I taught you. He's saying, because I go to the Father, because I die, you will be empowered even more. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look at what Jesus says. First of all, notice that Jesus doesn't say, He doesn't say, whoever just believes will do great things. Those aren't his words. This doesn't turn into a Disney musical all of a sudden. I was talking to a member the other night, and she said that it's very popular now in the business world to embrace this sort of manifest idea that 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 you, as a business associate, if, if you really want to get ahead in life, if you want to make it to the top, if you want to become CEO, then you proclaim what you're going to do, you shout it out into the ether, and if you say it enough, it will happen. That you will create your own future by speaking it. And this member was telling me it's called, again, something like manifest yourself. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. See, the power here isn't rooted in belief itself. You notice the power is rooted in the person of Jesus. He says explicitly, whoever believes in me, I'm about to go die, and yet if you believe in me, the dead man, you will do amazing things. In other words, even though he's about to be crucified, Jesus is proclaiming to still be the one who has supreme importance here, not the one who's believing. He has the supreme importance. The power to do these greater things, if you will, comes directly through faith in Jesus. But I think to understand more what he's saying here, we have to go down to verses 13 and 14 because that fleshes it out more. 13 and 14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so when we read these verses, we realize that these powerful workings, these greater things are going to be rooted in prayer, in prayer to the Jesus who was crucified, So much so are these works rooted in prayer that it, it isn't even the person who believes in Jesus doing the greater works, notice that, but it's Jesus himself that will do the works. I mean, Jesus says sort of on the first hand, you will do greater works. If you believe in me, you will do greater works. But then when you get into the specifics of it, he says, if you ask me, Twice Jesus says, not you will do it, but I will do it. Think of the magnitude of it. I mean, just think about it. Look, we know Jesus is the risen Lord now. But if you're sitting there, if you have a a friend who is going to his death, and he tells you, look, after I die, you can ask me for favors and I'll do them for you. It makes no sense. And yet, Jesus is saying ask me and I will do things for you. After I die, you can come and ask me anything and I'll do it for you. And he says it with a completely straight face. But notice here the qualifications that Jesus gives. He says that what you ask needs to be asked in my name and it must be something that glorifies the Father through the Son. You see, I'm afraid that too many people throughout history have Read these words, and what they've concluded is that if I just pray for anything and I close that prayer in Jesus' name, amen, I'll get it. Like God is some kind of gumball machine. That if I just say these words, anything, He'll do whatever I ask. Friends, that turns you into the Lord, that turns you into the one practically commanding Him. Lord, this is what I want, now give it to me. And then sit back and wait for him to do it. But You see, the phrase, in my name, doesn't simply mean, conclude your prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen. It refers to prayers that are offered in accord with what his name stands for. His name, remember, if we go back a few sermons ago, his name is Yahweh the Holy One of Israel. If you're asking Yahweh to sin, for instance, it's not going to happen. He cannot sin. He can't sin because it's not in His character to sin. You have to ask in accordance with what His name stands for. In other words, the prayers that you have to ask for must be in line with His holy and sovereign will. Think about it, it only makes sense. If God wills to do something, and the thing that you're asking is going against what he wants to do, he's not going to break his will for you. But still, that being the case, I want us to consider how amazing these words are. See, Christian, if we ask, what Jesus is saying here is that if you and I ask for anything that is in accordance with the will of God, that glorifies the Father through Jesus, he will do it for us. But he tells us to ask him. Do you? Do you ask Some of you do, I know. But for some of you, like me, I'll admit, prayer seems so hard. But think about it. God made prayer the easiest thing in the world. He doesn't tell us we have to make a pilgrimage to some mountaintop. He doesn't tell us that we have to be uh, have completed so many uh, memorizing so many passages of Scripture before we can pray or, or that we have to be married and have kids before we can. I mean, none of these things. There are no stipulations. Jesus says all you need to do is where you are in whatever place you are, ask me. Open your mouth and ask me for what you want. And if it is in my name... And if it is in accordance and glorifies my Father in heaven, I will do it for you. And yet how many of us, though we can simply talk to God, that we can go to God with an infinite number of things and ask Him, yet we don't. Again, I can attest to that. We keep our mouths shut. We, we sit and stew over it and we worry about it and we talk to fellow human beings about it. And we don't go to God. But still, we come to this issue of greater works. What could be any greater than the works that Jesus did while he was on earth? I mean, we just talked about them. Well, I think part of understanding what Jesus means here is to go back in the Gospel of John. Because this isn't the first time that Jesus has said something like this. In the first chapter of John, John 1 50, Jesus says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Then Jesus says, I tell you, you will see greater things than these. Then later in in John chapter 5, Jesus says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Two other times, Jesus began to do greater works, greater works than these. Interestingly, in both of those times, earlier in John, Jesus is referring to himself in those instances as the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man was Jesus' most preferred title to give to himself. But when Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, you realize that the people around him who heard that got very angry and said he was blaspheming. That's because they knew what he meant by that. They knew that when he said, I am the Son of Man, he was pointing back to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, what we see is this person called the Son of Man. And he comes before the Ancient of Days, God on the throne. And to this one, called the Son of Man, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should obey and serve and worship him. That's who the Son of Man is. So when Jesus says, when they say, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven the chief priests ripped tore their clothes and said, this man is committing blasphemy because they knew he was claiming to be the God of Daniel chapter 7. And you see, if if we understand that and we understand here that Jesus is saying these greater works are going to be done because I go to the Father, then we understand that the very reason the apostles will be able to do even greater works than the one Jesus did with them when he was with them physically is because the work that will be done for the kingdom of God after Jesus has risen and returned to the Father will be done by the power of the now resurrected and glorified Lord. One one New Testament scholar says this, glorified with the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, the Son is no longer limited by the the pre-death humanness that characterized his ministry. See, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he will no longer be the poor, humble carpenter's son who wandered around in one place or in another place, he was. Na- he would now be the reigning Lord Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, sending His Spirit throughout the entire earth. You know, some of you, maybe you had one of these, maybe you have one of these now. I don't think so. I don't think I've had seen anyone car in the parking lot with this. But you remember those old bumper stickers that said, "My boss is a Jewish carpenter." I used to see those when I was a kid. I mean, I don't mean to to belittle those, but but frankly, I don't agree. Uh, I I think they should be changed. I think if Christians are going to put a bumper sticker on their car, they they don't say, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. It, It should say, my Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is no longer a poor Jewish carpenter. See, the contrast in verse 12 between... My works and, and these works and, and the works I did here and the greater works that are going to come later, I don't think the contrast is, is between Jesus's works and the disciples' works as much as it is between the works that Jesus did before his resurrection and the works that Jesus will do through the disciples after his resurrection. That's what we're talking about here. The book of Acts, all you need to do is read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is oftentimes referred to, I think incorrectly, as the book of the Acts of the Apostles. I think a more correct title of the book of Acts would be the continuing Acts of Jesus after he is risen. The apostles are are simply stewards of the power that Jesus gives them, the now resurrected and glorified Lord. The apostles, all you need to do is is read through the book of Acts, and and you see that through the power of the Lord Jesus, the apostles are able to heal the lame. They are able to heal the sick. They are even able to raise the dead to life. And over and over again, the book of Acts says that the apostles were accompanied by many signs and wonders. In fact, it was those signs and wonders that attested to their being apostles, see the reason that their works were greater than Jesus isn't because Jesus is now more God it's because these works are done on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Christ you see it's because all of the works done after the resurrection are accompanied by the preaching of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We talked about last uh, Sunday how when Jesus was physically present, his mission was in large measure veiled. Even though he was doing incredible works, most people didn't believe in him. His disciples didn't even know what He was doing. They didn't know what the ultimate goal was. They didn't know who He was in reality, and they didn't know what salvation consisted of. But when He had completed His work, when He went to the Father, as He says, then He sent the Holy Spirit, who we will see soon in a future sermon, and suddenly Every miraculous work done in his name was done in the context of the completed gospel. And you see the greatest work, the greatest work that was seen, and you can see this all throughout the book of Acts, that even though the apostles are doing miraculous works, even though great miracles are happening, and and again, the dead are being raised and the lame are being healed and all of that, the apostles don't even want to focus on that. Yes, it attests to the fact that they are indeed apostles of Jesus, but when people point to the miracles, the apostles say, don't focus on that, focus on the death and resurrection of the Lord. Because you see, if you just focus on the miracles, then the greatest miracle will not happen. Because the greatest miracle is not the healing of the lame or even the raising of the dead physically to life, but the raising of dead hearts to life when they come to life through the preaching of the gospel. You see, Christian, you may not have ever seen a physical miracle in your life. Probably most of you here haven't. I've seen a few in mine. Uh, They've been few and far between. But I have seen things that have happened in my life that I know Without a shadow of a doubt, no one could ever convince me otherwise that they were done by the miraculous intervention of God. However, even if you've never seen anything like that, Christian, you are a walking miracle. Because you see, no one can change a human's heart except for God. You can't even change your own heart. And yet at some point in your life, you heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now the risen and reigning Lord sent his Holy Spirit into your heart and made what was once a dead heart alive. You are the greatest walking miracle, which brings us to the final verse for today, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this statement sort of seems to come come out of nowhere, in a sense, because all throughout the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus is giving a bunch of promises. He states promise after promise after promise. Promise promises like, I am going to prepare a place for you to take you where I am. I'm I'm not going to leave you as orphans because I live, you also will live. All of these things, he's telling them promise after promise, and then kind of scattered throughout, three times he says something like this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says it in various ways. But kind of strewn throughout all these promises are two things that are intimately connected. One is love for Jesus, and the second that is connected with it is obedience to Jesus. Love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus. Well, how are we to understand these statements? Well, if you look at verse 15, notice, first of all, the order. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, then you will love me. He he doesn't say that obedience leads to love. He He says obedience follows from love. Notice, that he also doesn't say, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's not issuing a command. He's not issuing a command to love. He's issuing a stating a fact of love. Now, I think this is important to understand because I know if you're like me, I think a lot of Christians read these statements. They're, again, you're reading through all of these promises in the upper room and then you get to a statement like this and you read them almost as warnings rather than promises. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm sure a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Because we know, if we know our own hearts, how often we don't obey Jesus. I don't keep Jesus' commands on a regular basis. Week after week after week. I didn't keep some of his commands today before I came up to preach. We know how often we don't keep Jesus' commands, and and so we read these verses like this, and and rather than rejoice, we we kind of cringe, because we look at our oftentimes abysmal record of obedience, and and we say, man, do I love Jesus? Doesn't look like it. See, we read Jesus' tone here as, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. But why not instead read it as the wonderful promise that it is? Why not read it as, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. See, what if if Jesus is not issuing threatening warnings that seem to undermine the gospel? But, But what if instead he is sharing the wonderful truth that there are some in this world who truly love him. And they and only they, out of everyone in the world, will bear fruits of obedience. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, who's an expert on the Gospel of John, he says it this way. I love the way he puts it. The love of the disciples for Jesus should not be seen as the price paid for this gift. Any more than it is the price paid for their obedience. Jesus is describing a set of essential relations, not a set of titillating conditions. His true followers will love him. They will obey him. And he, on his part, will secure them. He will secure for them from the father who denies nothing to his son, another counselor. You see, there are plenty of people in this world who study Jesus, right? There are plenty of people in this world who know about Jesus. There are plenty of people in this world who believe truths about Jesus. You may be sitting here today in that condition, but Jesus is talking only about those who love him. See, obedience to Jesus is rooted in love for Jesus. See, there are Two categories of people in this world, and only two categories. There are those who love Jesus and those who don't. See, friend, the question before you today is not, do you know a lot about Jesus? The question for you this morning is not, have you studied the Bible a lot? The question for you this morning is not, have you gotten a seminary degree, or did you go to Bible college? The question is, is not, can you pass a theological or biblical exam and get, and get an A on it. I guarantee you Satan can out-ace any of us in here when it comes to theological exams. See, the question this morning is, do you love Jesus? The question is, do you long to see Him? The question is, do you long to have Him put His arms around you? and welcome you home. The question is, would you easily give up that planned trip to Europe next year to have him return today? Do you long to look into his eyes and hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. See, if so, if that is the disposition of your heart, then Jesus promises that you will obey his commands. It's an if then statement. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Why? See, because you want to serve the people you love. Love produces service, love produces obedience. I know this is gonna sound crazy to most of you, some of you will probably relate. But before Michelle and I had our first child, Luke, I actually prayed. It was one of the times I asked. I opened up my mouth and I I actually prayed that God would help me to love him. I know that sounds crazy, but I was the baby of the household. I didn't have any younger siblings. I didn't have any children that I had to look after or care for. There were no babies in my house. Uh, growing up, I was the youngest. And so, when I was a teenager and I would go to friends' houses who had little siblings, young, maybe even babies there, they weren't even on my radar screen. I didn't even look at those kids, much less care about them. I didn't hate kids. I just didn't really care that much about them. And so, I wanted to care for my son. And I knew I just, I didn't have it in me. I didn't have the heart to care for kids. And so, I I ask God, Lord, help me to love my son. Please, Lord, give me the desire to want to change him sometimes. Lord, please get, give me the desire to, to want to hold him when he cries and, and he's crying in my ear, to, to want to read to him, to, to want to hug him and kiss him and tell him I love him. You see, I, I figured that given my history, I would have to go into parenting uh, looking back on my previous week's be- behavior toward Luke as a diagnostic as to whether or not I loved him. I-, I thought I would have to look back on the previous week's obedience and say, well, h- how did I do? Do I love Luke? Well, let's, let's think about it. I-, I did change him a couple times. I didn't like it that much. Uh, I-, I held him last night when he was crying. That kind of annoyed me, though. Uh, I did feed him uh, one time when Michelle was tired, and I read to him last night, I, I guess on balance, I do, right? I thought that, that was how it was going to operate. You know, in fact, the opposite happened. The, the second that I held him in my arms, I was filled with an irresistible, seemingly unlimited love for this person I had just met. And this love was created in me. I I didn't do it. But from that moment on, when when I had this love for my son, I couldn't help but want to do those things for him. Every chance I could. And I loved doing it. Brothers and sisters, you and I were born enemies of God. And unlike me as a, as a dad who didn't really have a, a natural uh, inclination to hate my son, we were born with a natural tendency to hate God and hate God's law. What changed? Was it, was it something we did? Christian, what Produces the fruit of love. It's not us. It's the fruit of the Spirit that produces love. What produces obedience? God actually promised. God said, A new covenant is coming. He told Ezekiel. He said, It's not going to be like the old covenant. I will put my spirit in my people. And when I put my spirit in them, I will cause them to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will do this for them. Does this mean that you will obey Jesus perfectly? No. I have never loved Luke perfectly. If we love Jesus perfectly, then Paul's letters would be half as long as they are. You wouldn't have to tell us what to do. You see, the question you can ask yourself this morning is one, and I'll close with this, that Martin Luther essentially asked. How do I know that I am obeying God, or at least trying to, out of love, rather than some other motivation? Here's how you can tell. Ask yourself this. What would my life look like if there were no consequences for my actions. That's how you can tell. Martin Luther, and I'll close with this, he says this, the law should find such pleasure in us that when you ask a person why he is chaste, he should say, not for the sake of heaven or hell, not for the sake of honor and shame, but simply because it appears to me to be very fine You see, a heart such as this really loves God's law. Such people love God and righteousness. They hate fear. They hate unrighteousness. But no man acts this way by nature. Despair follows when a man recognizes that to love God's law is impossible for him. He ought to have that love, but he does not find any. And of and by himself, he can have none. But God comes And he offers his lovely living word, his promises, his pledges, and he obligates himself to give grace and help that we may get out of this misery, and that all sins not only be forgiven, but blotted out, and that love and delight to fulfill forgiveness uh, of the law may be given beside. See, this divine promise of his grace and of the forgiveness of his is properly called the gospel. Gospel is Greek, and it means promise. It means good news because in it is proclaimed the saving doctrine of life. In it is the grace and the forgiveness of sins. He then who believes the gospel receives grace and receives the Holy Spirit and thereby the heart becomes glad and joyful in God and then yearns to keep the law gladly and freely without the fear of punishment and without expectation of reward, for it is sated and satisfied with that grace of God by which the law has been satisfied. Why do we love him, Christian? We read it earlier. We love him because he first loved us. And that's what we remember when we come to the Lord's Supper.